Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, February 26th. A Calgary motorist was killed last week after his vehicle hit a C-train. Could it have been a case of road rage? And does it seem like more drivers are losing their cool behind the wheel these days? We discussed the heated issue with Dooley Christensen, registered psychotherapist and author of the new book, The Rise of Rage. Next, research has shown that loneliness is as bad for people's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it's been declared the latest public health epidemic. We get the details on a new study focused on that topic from Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. And finally, nothing like seeing your favorite rock stars on their world tours, but is it too much to ask for an earlier start time? While it's fine to stay up all hours when you're in your 20s, those of us a little further along age-wise, who are shelling out big bucks for concerts, would be interested in a more reasonable start time to these concerts. We tackled the topic with Globe and Mail columnist Marsha Lederman. Road rage, certainly something that we hear a lot about as of late. And it was just last week when a car stalled between the sea tracks on Memorial Drive at Deerfoot Trail. Uh, Sterling Smith was a passenger in one of those vehicles. And from him, he was one of the people in the car, said that a stranger had pulled over to try to help by offering to push the vehicle. But Sterling and his sister, who were in that car that broke down, were concerned that their vehicle would end up on the sea train tracks. So they declined his help. Well, Sterling says that man got upset and he left in a huff. So he just got in his vehicle and hit the gas and took off. And then as soon as he took off, I heard the train horn just honking away, but he wasn't slowing down because it was like within like three, four seconds. Well, investigators confirm they are looking into an interaction between motorists before that vehicle C-train collision, which did ultimately claim the life of a man. They are reviewing traffic cam video, the video from the train itself. They're looking for dash cam video as well for anybody who might have been in that area. So while police are investigating the possibility this could have been a case of road rage, there are a lot of incidents being reported of late of road rage in this country, that it's on the rise. Why are we seeing that? What is it leading people to experience more rage? What is it? out on the roads while they're behind the wheel, even maybe in a grocery store, Andy. So Julie Christensen is a registered psychotherapist in St. Catharines, Ontario. She is the author of a book called The Rise of Rage, and Julie joins us now. Good morning, Julie. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Appreciate it. Uh, We know this particular case in Calgary still being investigated, but what are your thoughts when you hear about an incident like this? Well, you know, it's really interesting that just recently, I think a few months ago, a Polara poll came out and they found that Canadians are reporting that they are angrier than ever and they are seeing more incidents of aggression and rage in the workplace, on the roads, and everywhere we go. And uh, I believe they found that Albertans, <laughs> sorry guys, but uh, uh, folks living in Alberta have the highest level of anger and aggression in the country. Kind of interesting. Julia, it you, is. You've, and you've got these stats in front of you, and you say they've risen. But do we know the why behind it? Why are these incidents perhaps happening more? That we do not know. I have some ideas about that. I think that certainly uh, two years of lockdowns didn't help matters much. You know, when you spend two years um, sitting in your house, sort of feeling trapped, working from home, taking care of your of your elder family members or your kids while you're trying to manage your job, 
and you know you're just limited in what you can do and you know you're spending most of your time in your pajamas or your sweats and then real life opens up again and you can go out i think a lot of people forgot how to interact with the general public Mm -hmm. you see it on the roads in terms of lack of manners when driving and certainly you know in the grocery stores and wherever you go uh, there are a certain contingent or there is a certain contingent of people who just, you know, their rudeness flourished over two years because they were just on their computers or on their phones doom scrolling and trolling people for two years and then they came back into the real world and they don't know how to interact anymore. Um, I know it's more, it's you know, it's deeper than that, but I think that contributed a lot to it because we just lost that social connection, right? Um, And so I think because of COVID and also because the political climate, you know, the cost of of living and inflation and just, you know, the general stress of the day, uh, people are having more difficulty regulating their emotions. I love the nervous laugh because we all know it's true. <laughs> exactly what it you said. So, um, so, you know, as we talk about the, the rise of rage, your book, I mean, it's not just road rage, though, right? There's a, there's a whole lot. And do you think a lot of it sort of has bubbled up from the United States and the things that we've seen politically in the U.S.? Certainly, I think that the, the tone of American politics has bled into the way we do things in Canada, particularly over the last four or five years. Uh, and that is disappointing to me personally, you know, as a Canadian citizen, first generation immigrant, you know, um, this, so, you know, my life intersects in so many different areas. Uh, and I look at it through all of those different lenses and I think, wow, you know, this isn't the Canada that I, I grew up in. I, it's not the Canada I remember. Um, so I do certainly think that, um, the, the way that politics is done and handled and the way that politicians communicate to each other in the, I don't know, the mudslinging and the character assassination. We didn't use to do that in Canada, at least not to the same extent that they do in the United States. But that seems to be changing here, and I don't think that's a change for the better. Julie, I'm wondering, you know, obviously you're focused on our nation and uh, different parts, uh, as you mentioned. We're not doing so well here in Alberta when it comes to road rage. Hmm. Uh, But I'm wondering how we stack up globally. I know that this is not a Canada, you know, specific issue, but do we have any stats on how Canadians are with road rage compared to other nations? Interestingly, we do not. Uh, and that that's certainly an area of research that could be pursued a little bit more deeply. I, and, you know, I don't know how road rage incidents in, in specific uh, happen across the globe. But in terms of the collective anger, I think we're seeing more of that probably even going back to 2012. You know, um, if we just look historically at the different uprisings around the world where the general public just decided we're done you know like we're fed up with whatever's happening politically or culturally in in their in their regions and they decided we're going to do something about it so not all anger is bad right actually i should say anger really isn't bad on the on the 
on the skin of it. Mm-hmm. It's just that sometimes the things that we choose to do about our anger, because anger is a response to a problem that you've identified, but most people don't know how to solve their problems, so they just express their rage. Um, but in places where we've seen, you know, um, uprisings and stuff, and people have actually overturned governments and, and tried to change their political systems, those sorts of things, that's where that collective anger is channeled into something that mm-hmm. that results in a good outcome, right? So our anger in and of itself is not bad. It's what we decide to do about that anger and how we respond to it and how we express it that that becomes a dangerous thing. And maybe when we're behind the wheel, we need to breathe a little more deeply and just let things go. Fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Julie Christensen is a registered psychotherapist in St. Catharines, Ontario, and the author of the book, The Rise of Rage. I'm Mr. Lonely. I have no. We all know that smoking is bad for you. So, how about something else that can be compared to and maybe equally as bad that uh, we could combat ourselves without a drug, without treatment? Talking about loneliness, and according to a new study, loneliness, the risk factor to your health, is comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, joining us to discuss is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Uh, good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. This is crazy when you put it in terms, 15 cigarettes, the health implications, uh, comparing that to being lonely. Uh, tell us about this study. Oh, it's fascinating. So uh, WHO, World Health Organization, is sort of really promoting this right now. And it's because of a a variety of studies that have come through, which are essentially showing that loneliness is a risk factor for heart attack, for stroke, for death, for diabetes, for dementia. And these are rates of 30%, 40%, 50%. So hence, the, they put it in the, the terms of smoking, like how much would you have to smoke to get that uh, similar risk factor. So this is something they're saying we should, as a medical people, we should screen for this, you know, do a blood pressure, do a pulse and ask, are you lonely? Mm-hmm. Is it something we need to do something about because it has that big of a health implication? So that's, <laughs> we've known that uh, this a long time, but I think it's putting it in terms, in absolute terms that are really uh, catch our attention. What is it, Dr. J, then, if we're lonely, what's that sort of doing physiologically to our bodies? Well, that's the whole issue, that it has huge negative implications metabolically. That isn't just, you know, I'm lonely, I feel sad. It's actually playing with our actual body chemistry. And by suppressing uh, certain things, uh, it, that's where that metabolic implication comes in. And we know this This is the same as depression. So if loneliness causes depression, depression is a very physical illness that messes with brain chemistry, messes with body chemistry. Uh, and hence, we get this patterning, which is is really abnormal, inflammatory, uh, very unhealthy. So that's what loneliness seems to be, that vector that can actually promote that negativity. But how do, how do we quantify loneliness, Dr. J, to a sense that it's maybe subjective? Maybe some people have to be surrounded by 10 people at any given time in a loud party to a certain extent. Other people might just need a friend to talk to. So is there some sort of a measure there? Uh, Good question. And that was one of the questions I had. And they say in surveys, the researchers have trouble because a lot of people don't admit to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe lonely, but they don't admit to it. So even our stats, are they accurate or inaccurate? Uh, And I'm not sure. And maybe this is what comes out of all of this research is 
can we get be- better measuring and better screening? Can we ask the right questions so we get the right answer? Uh, because it is difficult. The other thing is social media has not been our friend here, and I want that message to come out loud and clear. So we think of this almost as a senior's issue, right? Mm. You know, you get old and then you're socially isolated, so you get lonely because there's nobody to talk to, etc. And And there certainly are a lot of programming, say, in the city of Calgary, through the library, through the seniors' active living. There's an amazing amount of uh, programs out there. You know, I want to be a senior to, to access some of these programs. Um, so we sort of are figuring it out in the seniors. But now this is drifting down to middle age, to, to our youth, who are spending a lot of time on social media. Uh, and there's actually a stat saying that if you spend two hours or more on social media, you are much more apt to be lonely mm-hmm. than if you spend 30 minutes or less. So people, the more social media, which you're supposed to be is supposed to help that loneliness is actually perhaps even making it worse. And beyond, I suppose, the physical risk factors, I would imagine, along with loneliness, you know, comes mental health concerns, depression, maybe even greater worries like, you know, suicide and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And with no support around it, right? I just need somebody to talk to, to be able to bounce these things off, to to hear me. Uh, I don't have that. I get even more despondent. I go down a rabbit hole, which could involve suicidality, which could involve substance abuse, which could involve a suicide attempt, etc. Very dangerous territory if I feel I have no connection with anybody I can actually talk to. A very interesting topic, and I think that to, to a certain extent we can all relate to mm-hmm. loneliness. Thank you so much, Dr. J. You betcha. It's Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. I mean, we've been talking about this a lot, and we've certainly seen it on social media, too. Uh, Concerts. Yes. Tickets are high. Uh, We love to go and see them. The prices are expensive, and they're really late at night for us. I think it was Jamie Lee Curtis that I saw, Andy, on social media, who was talking about... Okay, great. I want to go see my favorite band, but why don't they play an earlier show? Why does it have to be so late? It's past my bedtime. Well, Madonna is just one of many rock stars who's been wowing fans with world tours of late. And considering a lot of fans and these musicians themselves are boomers or Gen Xers, our next guest is asking if they should consider maybe starting their shows a little earlier. Marsha Liederman is a columnist with The Globe and Mail, and she joins us this morning. Hi, Marsha. Good morning. Okay, you recently saw Madonna in Vancouver. First of all, how awesome was she? Incredibly awesome. <laughs> like, if I can even walk three steps that way when I'm 65, I will thank my lucky stars. Oh, and, good one. Sorry, pun intended. Yes. Ooh, I love that. I love that. You know, the rock star is notorious for starting shows late because... They're rock stars. They're going to do what they want. We all know that, Marsha. There's no question. Uh, But it got to the point, for example, we heard about this in the news. Lawsuit. Uh, Madonna's facing a a lawsuit from fans who say that, uh, you know, they they were kind of duped. They waited too long for her to take to the stage. Is it time we take a close look at how late these shows are? Is that kind of a one-off? Or when we hear these stories, are they few and far between? Well, I'm not sure legal action is necessary in this case or any others, but yeah, I've been going to concerts for longer than some people listening right now have been alive. (laughs) And when I was a younger person, I didn't care if the acts came on late. They they almost always do. Um, But, you know, I'm getting to a certain age where... I can't really handle a weeknight out past Mm -hmm. midnight. And I think 
uh, it's not just a me issue. I think when you look at the target demographic for a lot of these concerts, we're seeing a lot of nostalgia tours happening right now, such as Madonna's. Um, I think it might be uh, considerate to think about the audience members who are going to be dragging their um, perhaps cellulite-ridden butts (laughs) to work the next morning. Uh, And honestly, it took me, I I would say, three days (laughs) to recover from my one late night out. And I don't think I'm the only one. I it's not just me kind of moaning about this. I think, well, I looked around. People were my age and older at that show, and I'm sure everyone was thinking the same thing. This is great, but I need to get to bed. Exactly. I mean, it was Jamie Lee Curtis who called out U2 and Coldplay, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago and made headlines for it, even saying, you know, Bruce Springsteen, his shows are so long. Not that I don't think most of us would complain about the length of them, but when you have a lot of people calling for shows, maybe concerts to start earlier, Do you think it's ever going to happen? Has there been any feedback from the artists themselves? Well, they are trying this more with theatre than concerts, although there are some concerts that are starting earlier, people have told me since I published this article. Uh, I think it makes sense uh, if, if the dollar is what is driving decisions and let's face it, the dollar is driving decisions. Mm -hmm. I think that um, concert promoters and theater companies need to look at this in order to keep people in the seats. Like, Madonna's not having any trouble, uh, I don't think, getting people out to her shows. Taylor Swift certainly Mm -hmm. isn't. Um, But, you know, a lot of theater companies are struggling right now. And one way I suggest to bring more people into uh, theaters to watch shows, um, more paying people, is to maybe start them a little bit earlier, Mm -hmm. which is something they're experimenting with uh, in the West End, in London, and also on Broadway. And I think it would be great to see more of that here in Canada. Mm -hmm. Agree. Speaking with Marsha Lederman, columnist for the Globe Mail, and in your article, I'm not sure if you've delved into this, you know, in in your research, uh, Marsha, but could it also be that Concerts are now a premium. It used to be, you know, you could go and not break the bank to see a concert. I remember when 100 or $150 was expensive for a concert ticket. Now you feel like you got a deal if you've, uh, you know, spent less than 200 bucks on a concert ticket. Could it be the fact that we're now paying a premium? Uh, one of the reasons that we feel like we have the right to complain about the concert start time? Well, I think we have the right to complain about whatever we want to complain about. (laughs) Whether something comes about as a result of that complaint is another story. But uh, I'll say something else about those prices. Who can afford them? Uh, Not a lot of younger people who, uh, you know, might have more energy to do a five-hour sleep night and turn around the next day and go to work or school. It's the older people who allegedly have more uh, disposable income and can afford those concert tickets. And we're the ones who are struggling the next day. So I think that the price does pay, um, sorry, it plays a role mm-hmm. in all of this, yes. I'm thinking maybe, you know, a, a cheaper matinee, shorter concert, and then maybe, you know, the full price, <laughs> full length concert in the evening would make, you know, the artists a lot more money and it would satisfy everybody. I don't know. That's just my thought. Maybe you can put that in your next article, Marcia. I don't oh, know. I love that idea. Can I make a theater recommendation for Calgary? Sure. 
As You Like It, which is opening tomorrow, or I think it's opening this week. Um, it is so good. It's set to Beatles music. I saw mm. it when it premiered here in Vancouver, and it's on at Theatre Calgary, yes. and I highly, highly recommend it. It's worth staying up late for. Okay, <laughs> perfect. That's theatrecalgary.com for your tickets, As You Like It, uh, Shakespeare and the Beatles coming together. Thank you for that suggestion, and thanks for your article. I think it's something hopefully we keep talking about because I'm all for an earlier concert time. I like your idea. Two shows a day. Right? I'm not sure Madonna could handle it, but Maybe hey, not. let's Okay. Doesn't Take mean care. we can't talk about it. Thanks, Marsha. Appreciate it. Marsha <laughs> Lederman is a columnist for the Globe and Mail.